0: Hello, and welcome to Through New Eyes, Reimagining History, a podcasting mentoring project created by members of the History Graduate Student Association from the Department of History and Philosophy at Southern Illinois University. These works are entirely student produced.
1: Welcome back to another special episode of Through New Eyes, Reimagining History, This is undergraduate Ryan Jurch from Southern Illinois University, and he is talking about Neville Chamberlain.
0: Hi, I'm Deanna McGuckin, and today we're interviewing Ryan Jurek about Neville Chamberlain. Ryan, can you tell us a little bit about Chamberlain for those who have never heard of him before?
1: Sure. So, um, Chamberlain served as Prime Minister directly before Winston Churchill, um, pretty much at the outbreak of World War II. And that's, that's largely how most people remember him. Um, of course, there's a lot more to him than just that. That was sort of towards the end of his life and the end of his career, really. Um, before that, he'd served in Parliament for years and years and years in all sorts of different positions, um, cabinet positions, backbench positions. Before that, he served in industry. Uh, served maybe isn't necessarily the right word, but he um, he did work um, in industry, managing businesses. Um, he was also um, and before that, he was actually mayor of Birmingham, which was a position that his father had held. Um, so there's sort of a legacy there too of his family. He had a very important family, um, especially in terms of politics um, on both sides of the aisle, really in British politics. Um, so even though he's mainly known for his later role as prime minister, he did a lot of important work and that's kind of what I was looking at.
0: Okay. Do you think that he was really given fair treatment in the pages of history?
1: I, my personal opinion is that he absolutely is not given a fair treatment. Um, sort of, I like to think that there's probably about as many people who hate Neville Chamberlain um, as who love Winston Churchill. Um, and especially you can hear, even in the modern day, Uh, Whenever something happens in American politics, um, we can hear the phrase, you know, this is a Munich moment, (laughs) or um, a Neville Chamberlain moment, or a Czechoslovakia moment, Um, and it's always going back to that one pivotal moment that he's remembered for, Um, and nothing else that he does is ever really remembered as being as significant as that one event, and even then the narrative around it is, in my opinion, just twisted, far beyond from what it actually is. so so now in, in popular culture and in modern memory, uh, I would say it's it's not at all really correct how we remember him. There's a lot more to his character than just that, that one specific moment in Munich.
0: For those that don't know, what is the Munich moment that you refer to? How is that?
1: Uh, sure, yeah. So the Munich moment, um, and it, it's got a number of different names really that you could call it by is whenever uh, Neville Chamberlain, of course there were other people there, but Neville Chamberlain's the one who's popularly remembered, at least in American and British culture, uh, signs a document with uh, Adolf Hitler uh, giving over the Sudetenland of Czechoslovakia, um, reneging on some past treaties. Um, The Czechs, of course, were not even invited to the table for that agreement, where a lot of their territory was signed over, and it's largely seen um, as probably one of the largest foreign policy failures of the 20th uh, 20th century, um, where basically Chamberlain is given all of the blame um, for appeasing Hitler um, and and giving him all of this territory without much of much of a fight at all, um, and it's it's sort of a culmination of a long series of events. Um, so there's a lot more to it really, but it's often just really refined down to this one moment where Chamberlain gets the signature from Hitler, signs over all this territory. Um, doesn't try to fight it. This is how it's remembered. And then, of course, he, he steps off that plane whenever he lands back in Britain, waving a piece of paper in the air, saying, you know, peace, of, peace for our time, um, which is actually a quote from Benjamin Disraeli, a previous prime minister. Um, but it's, it's you know, he's remembered for saying that, and then, of course, immediately afterward, World War II kicks off. So he's sort of forced to <laughs> to eat his own words in the popular memory Um which there's a lot more to it than just that one moment, but that's, that's all that he's really remembered for a lot of times.
0: What would you think that maybe if... What would you think he needs to be remembered for in addition to that moment? What is some of the good things that maybe you think Neville Chamberlain did that he deserves some recognition for that history has maybe overlooked?
1: Well, that's, that's an interesting question because there's really kind of two sides to it, in my opinion. Um, to start off with, just the sort of the base response to what you asked. Um, he enters parliament at the age of 49, which is incredibly late for, for anyone in politics, especially someone as well-connected as he is. Um, before that, like I said, he was mayor of Birmingham. Um, so really, he wasn't ever a politician in the usual sense. He didn't start his life expecting to go into politics. Um, he didn't start his life being trained to go into politics. Um, he actually, one of the first things that he's, he set out to do um, is to try to manage a, a plantation in the Caribbean. And it's a massive failure for his family. They lose something on the, on the order of like 50,000 pounds um, in this failure. But then after that, he comes back, he keeps working, he gets into Birmingham, he gets into local politics um, a little bit. Um, But it's mostly following his father's footsteps. And he's not really trying to campaign for a larger stage. He's not expecting to go up eventually to the prime ministership. What he's really doing, what I think should be remembered for him, is the amount of work that he was doing um, on the ground, sort of administrative work, reforming systems, uh, making new systems. He's, He's known for this incredible work ethic. And he expected the exact same amount of work from his staff as well. And he institutes some of the first major reforms for city planning planning in Birmingham, um, making it a a modern town, really, through his work. And then eventually, whenever he does get sent into Parliament, um, that's just after World War I, uh, he carries that same sort of spirit right into Parliament, where he is working in all of these different positions. Of course, he's a member of his father's political party, um, the Liberal Unionists who had split from the Liberal Party, and there's so much more you could go into that with his father because his father is such an interesting political character as well. Um, probably far more engaged in, in politics than Neville was at that point. Um, but once once Chamberlain does get into office um, and starts working, he works in all of these different positions. Um, for instance, he's um, he was Minister of Health. Um, he was also appointed Chancellor of, Ex- of the Exchequer, And these are incredibly important positions. Um, And he rose up to these ranks really incredibly fast. And and a large degree of it was because of the politics going on at the forefront that he wasn't necessarily massively involved with himself. Um, The liberal unionists, uh, for the most part, were refusing to serve in different governments for political reasons, whereas whenever he was given a chance to sort of do a public job and. you know, work for the, the betterment of, of people. Um, he did it. He took the job and he he went for it. And he, he did a lot of really great things. Um, for instance, one of the most important acts. And there's there's really a lot that you could talk about because he serves in these different positions, um, basically right through the interwar years. Every you know, basically from the end of World War One right up to the start of World War Two, he's working in in just <laughs> really a strange number of positions uh, for someone who is of his stature, but. Um, One of the most important acts that he passes or or manages to get to pass is the Local Government Act of 1929, um, which completely abolishes these poor law boards. Um, The poor law boards, it's a system that had existed for for centuries, basically, um, trying to get local communities to take care of their poor. It was badly mismanaged. And you can imagine, you know, today, administrative problems that you might have in an office. These are problems that have accumulated basically since you know, since the time of Queen Elizabeth I. Um, so they've been accumulating for a very long time. It's a massive amount of work to try to completely overhaul this entire system. Um, and he tackles the problem head on. He goes straight into it. He works almost constantly to get it accomplished. And then eventually he manages to get it passed into law. Um, a, a massive amount of reform for uh, not only urban welfare, um, poor relief, things like that, um, also, whenever he's Chancellor of the Exchequer, he's in charge of trying to balance this budget, which his is previous governments had completely failed to do. Um, the McDonald government, for instance, which is one of the first labor-majority governments, completely fails to tackle the budget crisis. Um, and, and he mostly manages to do it. He even manages to address um, the interest rate on Britain's war debt from World War One, brings it down from 5% to 3.5%, and then even past that time, manages to to lower it even more, Um, again, to try to get more spending into these social programs. So the amount of work that he's doing, I don't want to say necessarily behind the scenes, because his family's still pretty high profile, Um, but a lot of work that's that's not remembered as well as a few of the major policy things that happened at the very end of his career just gets uh, really overlooked, in my opinion.
0: Okay. So if we call back to the Munich moment, that moment that he is so well-remembered in history for. Um, I'm sure he had advisors, cabinet members that were, I guess, around him during this and advising him. Did they kind of suffer across the pages of history the same way he did as, you know, hey, these guys were associated with this, or did they go on to bigger and better things, or did they just fall off the radar?
1: So, so that's actually a really good way, I think, um, your question, to address kind of the, the second part of, of what's not remembered very well about his life, is that in everything that he's worked for, it's domestic policy that he's working on. Um, whether he's working um, in industry or in city politics in Birmingham, or whenever he's chancellor of the Exchequer, it's almost entirely domestic politics. He has really no f- experience with foreign affairs. Um, in fact, whenever he flies to Munich to, to work on the agreement is the first time that he's taken any kind of long plane trip. The only other time he's been on the plane before that is this short little jaunt uh, that he has before this, just a very tiny little flight, really. So you can imagine going almost just this tiny little distance versus flying from England all the way to you know, Czechoslovakia, or Germany, sorry, um, is, is kind of a massive difference. So it's sort of, I think, that highlights exactly how much inexperience he has in foreign policy. Um, and at the time, he's relying on these different advisors to try to tell him what he should probably be doing. Um, and no one, really, no one really knows what to do. Um, the Conservative Party is, is still championing the appeasement policy which he's remembered for as being his own policy um, when when really it was the policy of of the entire party had been for a very long time Um, and and the labor party too which was um, the other major major party in politics in parliament at that time is also in favor of appeasement up until just a few years before the war begins Um, so there's there's a lot going on on there um, there's a lot of disagreement about how he's supposed to handle it. Afterwards, a lot of his advisors in the memoirs write, uh, "You know, actually, we weren't in favor of this. We tried to advise against it. We thought that maybe it was a, a massive problem, um, you know, on the horizon, and we tried to advise against it." Um, but at the time, it was a very unclear situation, um, and he doesn't—he just doesn't really have a lot of the experience needed to try to tackle it. Two important names, and these are important names because they come up pretty prominently later on in, in British political history, that I do also want to mention that are related to this same event are um, Anthony Eden and Lord Halifax. Um, in in the the early years, so in, in about, and by early years, I mean early years of, of Neville Chamberlain's final end of his political career, kind of, uh, so around 1937 and a little bit before that, Anthony Eden is actually serving as the, the foreign secretary. And um, whenever Chamberlain is trying to start to realize um, what is going to be going on with a resurgent Germany and, and Italy and everything, um, he proposes that they try to do everything they can to keep Italy basically on their side. Um, it, and it's, it's appeasement policy, plain and simple, but it's been the policy of the Conservative Party all down the line at this point. Um, and whenever he starts proposing that they sort of concede to Italy and give in, um, that they agree that Italy has conquered Ethiopia, Eden threatens to resign. Um, and Chamberlain basically says, you either have to follow my policy or go. And Eden, who is a fairly experienced member of foreign, foreign policy, although he would have his own foreign policy <laughs> failure later on down in future years with the Suez Canal, uh, chooses to resign. And most people in the party were extremely confused by this they didn't think that this was something that Eden needed to resign over about appeasement. Um, So you can see how how thickly this policy of appeasement is laid in not only with the conservative party, um, but with Chamberlain's advisors as well. And then Lord Halifax, um, who replaces Eden as uh, Chamberlain's foreign secretary, is also entirely in favor of appeasement. And much later on, whenever Churchill eventually becomes prime minister, uh, right after the wars began in, in May 1940, Lord Halifax is actually the one still championing appeasement, um, arguing that Churchill basically needs to try to find a peace deal with Hitler, even as he's in the middle of invading France. Um, So to call Chamberlain the chief appeaser uh, is, I think, a little mistaken. I think that title should go to Lord Halifax for a number of reasons. Um, But it it does go to illustrate more closely to the point um, exactly how baked in this appeasement policy was to the party, and to the advisers that Chamberlain was having to try to rely on.
0: Wow. You've talked about how the Munich Agreement is received now. But at the time, how was it received in Parliament? And how did it contribute to his downfall as PM?
1: So that's that's sort of the interesting thing, right? Whenever you look at this historically and not just through the popular lens. Um, again, not to go back to it, but in popular discourse today, we hear the terms over and over again. You know, this is a policy of appeasement. We can't go back to appeasement. This is a Munich moment. This is a Chamberlain moment. Um, There's a great clip. It's um, someone on Fox News being interviewed. And he says, this is a a church, this is a Chamberlain moment. This is a Munich moment. And the Fox host who's interviewing him goes, "Do do you even know what that means? And he just keeps repeating it. And it becomes pretty obvious later on that he doesn't even know what he's saying. So it's parroted about so much that it loses all meaning at a certain point. Um, it just is, is sort of seen as this bad thing that happened. But of course, whenever Chamberlain comes back from Munich, um, lands, waves the piece of paper, peace for our time, it's applause. It's applause all the way around, not only from Parliament, but from everybody in the streets. Nobody wants to go back to World War I. Nobody wants to suffer through that again. Um, they think he has accomplished this magnificent crowning achievement. Um, he's actually, whenever he returns, he's summoned back to the palace to speak with the king. Uh, you know, First thing, urgent, get here as soon as you can. And there's so many people in the way between this airport, which at, at that time was just on the outskirts of the, the greater city of London, uh, trying to get from this airport into the center of London. It takes him almost an hour <laughs> to get to the palace, just because there's so many people blocking his way. Um, and then in Parliament, of course, it, it's seen as this triumphant achievement of his. It's not really until later on, um, once the failure becomes evident, that people start to realize that something has is, is gone bad. No one really blames Munich as, as the major problem. It's, it's really not until um, what's called the Norway debate that things fall apart and they fall apart quickly. Um, people have become more and more dissatisfied as Germany continues to grow and it's becoming increasingly clear that Hitler's not going to stop um, and there's this debate that's called in Parliament. Um, basically, at this point, Hitler has invaded Norway. Um, Allied forces have been sent to respond. He's invaded Poland, Britain, and Germany are at war. And of course, it's also important to note that Chamberlain is is it's under his government that Britain actually declares war on Germany. So the appeasement policy does stop at some point. Um, but the Norway debate happens as as the Allied forces, the British forces are evacuating Norway. And Chamberlain's forced to try to defend his actions to the House of Commons, which is, has voted at that point um, just to have open debate. So there's not a measure on the table. They're just openly debating the conduct of the war, as is what the actual debate's titled, the conduct of the war. Um, and Chamberlain gives up and he's, he gives this tired, defeated speech. You know, all of these this policy, him trying to prevent another World War I, um, the policies that he's followed. You know, the Conservative Party line and, and everything that his advisors have been telling him to do, he's done, and it's it's not prevented this war. Um, and he gives this awful, tired sounding speech, and it just sort of falls apart from there. And over the next two days, it goes from this dignified debate to almost chaos in the House of Commons. Um, people are, are getting up and interrupting other people's speeches, there's yelling um people bobbing up and down for hours to try to get the attention um the speaker of the house is is yelling at people to sit down and stop shouting and let other people speak um whenever chamberlain tries to speak members of the labor party are shouting at him uh, eventually members of his own party start start shouting on him um one of the most uh, probably one of the most well remembered quotes is whenever a, a senior member of his own party stands up and says for the love of god go <laughs> telling him to resign to his face um and in that moment, um, the next prime minister, Churchill, is, is sitting there throughout all these debates, very quietly, a member of the government. Um, but he's been sort of in, the, in the, the, you know, the hills of the conservative party for the longest time. Um, and at the very end of the debate, once it's pretty clear to pretty much everyone but Chamberlain and, and his closest supporters that his government's been eviscerated in front of all of parliament, uh, Churchill, for the first time in 11 years, is given the chance to give the final speech in defense of the government, and he gives this kind of half-hearted, well, yeah, maybe there were some problems, but we did our best, and and also it's not my fault. Um, <laughs> um, and it's, it's sort of over for Chamberlain at that point. So we remember the Munich moment as being this big defining moment, this pivotal moment where, uh, you know, Chamberlain exposes himself for the coward that he really is or whatever. But uh, the actual history doesn't play out that way at all. It's not until later on, once the war is in full swing, that his government even collapses. Um, So I, I think even the fact that we don't even really remember the exact events of what happened speaks to how misunderstood he is.
0: Okay. How do you think we got to the point that he's basically remembered for this one moment in what was otherwise appeared to be a long and pretty successful career? How did we get to the point that this is the only thing that this gentleman is remembered for?
1: So I, I think the best way to answer that is, um, I started this, this discussion off by saying that, I think there's as many people who hate Chamberlain as who love Churchill, um, and there's a little bit more that I mean to that to that quote. Um, again, I I don't mean to really knock Churchill at all. Um, I have a great amount of respect for Churchill, uh, despite what he what he may or may not have done. I, I think his conduct um, in in saving Britain and the Allies over World War II is is um, incredibly worthy of praise. But he bears, I think a large degree of the responsibility for the, the public perception that we have of Chamberlain today. Um, there are other factors, but Churchill and Chamberlain have worked together at this point in, in 1940, whenever Chamberlain resigns and Churchill takes over. They worked together in government for decades, um, often in, in a lot of the same roles. So not like they were on opposite sides of the house or you know working on completely separate projects. They, they worked together on things. Um, And Churchill, in his memoirs um, that he writes a little bit later on, sort of just really tears apart Chamberlain's entire image. Um, And he's he's tearing apart the appeasement policy of the conservatives and kind of reinventing himself a little bit too. Um, But he kicks off what I think is, is probably, you know, the start of a very long... Uh, trend of of knocking Chamberlain as as the face of appeasement, basically, and it's not entirely Churchill. There there's books that are published um, even while the war is going on, um, talking about how awful Chamberlain was and that it's all his fault. Um, some of them published anonymously, of course. Um, so people who are either his opponents or his supporters, really all over the aisle. Um, and and I, and I think one final thing too to remember is that um, Chamberlain dies. He, he dies of bowel cancer about six months after leaving office. Um, he'd had cancer. He knew he had cancer even while he was prime minister, which is maybe partially explains why he's looking so defeated and sick at the end of his prime ministership. Um, so he's not really able to defend himself. And being someone who was recently ousted as prime minister being someone who's being called you know, the face of appeasement. Nobody really wants to associate themselves by trying to defend him. Uh, some of his closest allies do, but a lot of them flock over to Churchill's side as soon as Churchill takes power. And Chamberlain, he doesn't get to write a memoir. <laughs> Churchill writes several books um, and then goes on to live for decades afterwards, uh, getting to talk about um, what, what his side of the story is, and he's this national hero. Um, you know, so a lot of people are going to take his word as gospel. Um, again, it's it's this isn't to knock Churchill, um, really, because there's, there's a lot contributing to it and there's a lot of other books and everything being published, but in my opinion, Chamberlain's, just because of how it happened, how quickly it happened and, and how quickly he died afterwards, he's not able to defend himself and his opponents get in the first word and it sticks like that for decades.
0: Okay, so basically, you would say as... Maybe Churchill's popularity is growing. Do you think that Neville Chamberlain's, I guess you would call it, unpopularity is also growing by about the same amount? Do you think it has a direct effect on that? I,
1: I would say you could probably certainly make a case for it. I don't want to say it is for certain um, because that's a, a little bit out of my wheelhouse. But you could definitely make a case, I think. And I'll explain why. Um, again, Chamberlain dies six months after he leaves office. Churchill remains in office throughout the entirety of the war. And then at the end of the war, there's a general election. Um, Churchill and the Conservative Party kind of run a campaign that's basically, you should vote for me because I'm Churchill. And, you know, we just won the war. Um, whereas Clement Attlee, who is, is championing the labor, party, head of the Labour Party, um, says, no, we need something new. Um, we need to build a better Britain, build a Britain for heroes. Um, he has all of these great policy proposals, and, and a lot of it, you know, appeals to, to a certain degree of, uh, for a lot of people in Britain who have now experienced a second world war. And it's it's important to remember that this is a world war that a lot of people are blaming on the Conservatives, because the Conservatives under, under Chamberlain were in power for a large part of the time before the war began and when the war started as well. So this this appeasement policy, which everybody can see now has has completely failed to accomplish any of its objectives, gets blamed on the conservatives, um, gets blamed on the conservative party. And so the conservatives lose that election. Um, Attlee comes into power. uh, Churchill, who you wouldn't think, you know, Churchill, this national hero, would get so quickly ousted from from the premiership He does, um, but he manages to come back. He gets re-elected later on, and I think a lot of that has to do with the Conservative Party trying to distance itself from the Conservative Party of the interwar years, and especially from appeasement. And one of the ways it does that is by trying to distance itself from Chamberlain. Um, So he gets mixed in with all this really bad blood, not only from the opposite side of the political aisle, but even by his own party. They want to distance themselves from anything he had to do with Um, And and that sort of, again, focuses Munich and appeasement entirely on him instead of anything else that he'd done before he was prime minister.
0: Right. And then, as you'd mentioned before, he's now deceased, so he's not even there to defend himself.
1: Exactly. Yeah. He has has no one who really wants to try to defend him. He can't defend himself. And there's Churchill still alive, becoming prime minister again uh, and still able to, you know, Keep giving his side of the story, really, when Chamberlain's not.
0: So, I want to thank you for coming in for the podcast today, and sure. if we could just close with, do you have any final thoughts on Neville Chamberlain?
1: So, Neville Neville Chamberlain, you know, obviously, I think he's misrepresented um, to a very great degree, and I think he's incredibly overlooked as well. Um, a lot of people, I think, they they look at political figures who have these great rises and falls, and they have really charged opinions about them. Either they love them or they hate them, whether you're talking about, in British politics, if you're talking about Thatcher, um, or if you're talking about, you know, Prime Minister's before, um, other important political figures, it's this hate-love relationship. And I feel like a lot of people for Churchill, or not Churchill, sorry, Chamberlain, uh, there's this sort of, like, sadness, almost, you know, oh, you know, World War Two happened and it was his fault. That sucks. Um, but also, they think, well, it was kind of his fault. And that's, that's where it sort of leaves off. At least that's my impression, anyway. Um, and I, I, I think that's... I understand why that happens, but I think it's incredibly wrong. I think he did a lot before he was Prime Minister to make him worthy of a lot of praise. He ranks, to my mind, as um, one of the, certainly one of the most hard-working political figures um, right up there with with some of my, my favorite british political figures like uh, the prime minister Robert peel from the 1840s um, but to think that he's remembered for this one specific moment where he's trying to deal with not only the internal forces of parliament his own political party um, cancer um, and also the outbreak of world war II. he's trying to you know understand hitler and 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 fight Hitler when he has absolutely no experience in foreign policy. And, and there's, there's plenty of things that get overlooked, too, even about that. He's responsible for cutting the budget whenever he's chancellor the exchequer to pay for these, these uh, relief programs and these, these welfare programs. But as it gets closer to war years and you start realizing that Germany's remilitarizing, he puts a lot of money into trying to reinforce the budget for, for air defense as well and into plane production. Um, and that might seem like a minor thing, but he's trying to do as much as he can. prepare his country, working on bad advice, in my opinion, working on bad facts, working on not even a lot of support, he's trying to do what he can, and then just the way he's remembered for it is, I I think, really regretful. Um, So I really would wish that more people would look into him and and try to figure out um, who he really was before just judging him on this one specific moment.
0: Wow, that was very insightful. (laughs) Thank you again for coming in. Thank you. That concludes
1: this episode of Through New Eyes, Reimagining History. Special thanks to our podcasters. In addition, we would like to thank Dr. Joseph Schrammack, our faculty advisor. Project coordinator, Jody Salazar. Assistant project coordinator,
0: Joshua Cannon. Theme song composer, Anise Coopwood and our mentors, George Hunt, Deanna McGuckin, Lydia Penzel, and Jody Salazar.
1: Please join us next time for another episode of Through New Eyes,
0: Reimagining History.